I love hearing people's stories, stories of how God has worked in their lives, because it's just a testimony to the artist that takes all of us as his palette. Um, I can't wait to hear the fullness of Jeff's story uh, this morning as he comes to share with us. He's agreed to come for no fee other than a love offering. That's very generous for a person of, of, uh, of, of his skill and of his talent, of his notoriety. Uh, I hope you will, after having heard that story, join me in a love offering. Uh, the love offering receptacle is right there back by the double doors. It's a little uh, column there with slots on the top. It's a safe place to drop your offering as you go uh, this morning. And uh, I want to be a part of seeing this story retold again and again and again. God's lifted him up as a light in this world as he lifts up all of us. Jeff, it's a joy to have you with us this morning. Jerry Riley, our lay leader this year, uh, is largely responsible for the connections that brought Jeff to us, and I'd like uh, Jerry, if he would, to introduce Jeff more fully to you. You just turned the button. <laughs> Pastor Chris, thanks for giving me the honor to introduce Jeff this morning. When Chris called yesterday and asked if I would uh, introduce Jeff, uh, how do you tell Chris no? So obviously I said yes. And my first inclination was to say, here's Jeff, kind of like the old Johnny Carson, here's Johnny. But it wouldn't give you the real insight to Jeff Bates. And I wanted to uh, take a few minutes to, to tell you my experience with Jeff over the last several days and last few months. But first, I want to welcome some people that drove all the way over from Hot Springs, Arkansas, to hear Jeff this morning. <clears throat> How I became to know Jeff, uh, back in August of 2015, I was called and was asked if our company would put together a, uh, an event at Stillwater, Oklahoma, a tailgate event, and if we could help coordinate it and stage it. It was going to be the start of a 16-city tour featuring Ronnie McDowell and a number of musicians, uh, some of which plays with Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefers Band. Uh, so very talented musicians and, and singers. And after putting this together, I thought, well, about a week before, I'm sitting back in my easy chair. Jerry, everything's taken care of. All we have to do now is execute. Well, I'll receive a call from Danny Raspberry, and Danny says, Jerry... We're adding somebody else to the itinerary. We're adding Jeff Bates. Well, fine. Danny, we have a big stage. It's about the size of this stage here. We can get 30 to 35 people on at one time if you need to. Uh, so that's not a problem. He said, well, that's not the problem. He's driving his own vehicle. Well, Danny, what size van does he have? Well, he doesn't have a van. So I kind of wipe my forehead and think, well, he's driving a compact car. Well, come to find out he has a 45-foot tour bus. Now, this is Bedlam. This is the OSU-OU football game in Stillwater. Where do you park a 45-foot tour bus with that short of notice? Well, we got it worked out. So I look back, and I wonder why was Jeff added, and why did Jeff bring his own vehicle? As Chris knows, he and I have been talking about having Ronnie McDowell come in the following Sunday. They were leaving on their tour, going to Kansas, coming back through Oklahoma. We're going to be playing in Ponca City on Saturday night and in Van Buren, Arkansas on uh, Tuesday. So they were going to be staying here in, in Tulsa. 
So I thought, well, let's see if we can get Ronnie to come out and sing How Great Thou Art. He, Ronnie's first hit song was The King Is Gone. He wrote it in the dedication of the passing of Ellis Presley. It does a beautiful rendition of How Great Thou Art. In the process of trying to put that together, they canceled their trip in Van Buren, Arkansas. Well, why did they do that? They canceled this trip in Van Buren, Arkansas. But, you know, I know somebody that has their own transportation, so maybe Jeff can come, and I heard him sing at the tailgate party, but maybe Jeff can come and share one of his songs. Well, I called Melissa, and you can't talk to Jeff without going through Melissa. <laughs> Melissa is Chris's Dana. So if you want to talk to Jeff, you have to call Melissa. Melissa said, Jerry, you know, we would love to do that, but we're not going to Ponca City. After our show on Friday night, we're going back to Mississippi, southern Mississippi, to give our testimony in a church. Now think about it. He just passed up an opportunity to sing in Ponca City with the, with the group accompanying him, and rather than doing that, went to Mississippi in a small rural church to give his testimony. With that, Melissa and I started visiting, and this past Friday night, we put together an event in Okima, Oklahoma, my hometown, at the Historical Crystal Theater. We had several hundred people show up, but 80 of those people were people that were going through uh, addiction uh, rehab, and Cree Oaks had 80 people that came in to hear his testimony. Thursday night, we had Jeff at a fundraiser in Grove, Oklahoma, that was in a church. Uh, we couldn't find any other facilities because everything was full because of the Bassmasters tournament. So it had to be held in a church, and it happened to be the home church of this candidate. Well, in the service that night was the minister of that church, and Jeff sent, spent about half of his time not singing secular songs, which is what the fundraiser was going to be. He spent probably half his time writing Melissa giving his testimony. In fact, she asked Jeff after it was over, said, Jeff, why did you give your testimony in, in this, at this fundraiser? This should have been a secular show. He said, well, we're in a church. <laughs> and the minister immediately came up to Jeff after the show and said, I want your card. I want to get you back up here to give your testimony to my congregation. In his testimony Friday night, uh, one of the ministers, and this was kind of put together through a coalition of churches and businesses in Okima, but one of the ministers there came up. I went up and talked to him after it was over. I said, Brother Gerald, he's a Pentecostal minister there in Okima. What did you think about his testimony? He said, Jerry, I had chill bumps from the tip of my head to the tip of my toes, and I cried the whole time. So I think you're going to be blessed by hearing Jeff's testimony, and I'm going to wrap it up by saying yesterday, Jeff and Denise and Melissa and myself went and had breakfast. Spent two hours at breakfast yesterday. And my takeaway from that was this. After two hours of visiting, I said, Jeff, let me ask you a question. If you had a choice to do your country music regular shows or give your testimony, which would it be? And this was his response. He said, Jerry, I love country music. I love writing country music. I've made a living out of writing and singing country music. But I don't like playing bars. If I had my choice, I would spend 365 days a year giving my testimony. So with that, I'd like to introduce my new friend, and I'm sure the new friend of this church, national recording artist, Jeff Bates.
I ain't used to being talked about like that, Jerry. <laughs> Pastor Chris, you have the kindest eyes of any man I've ever met in my life. If Jesus had kind eyes like yours, I can imagine that the whole world would just follow him around and say, what are we going to do that's real loving and kind and sweet next? You're a good man. Having said that, thank you for allowing me to be in your church today. Jerry Riley, I love your heart, and thank you for the introduction. I couldn't help but notice when we arrived this morning that the sign out front says, Country Music Star. And I actually thought they were talking about somebody else, and then I saw my name under it. I'm just a man, and I'm no different than you. And with saying that, let's just bow our heads and pray, and I'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your gift of life and gift of grace. Thanks for allowing us to gather under your roof in your house on your world to worship you, honor you, and share you. Father, don't let this be about me. Let this be about you and what you can do in every man and woman and child's heart and life if we just but surrender to you. So please hide me behind the cross and open every mind and heart and ear to hear the words you would hear that have them say. In Jesus' most loving name, amen. I was born in Alabama, but I never knew my mama. She gave me away at three months old. Some folks in Mississippi took me in and kept me and treated me just like I was their own. A holiness preacher man's daughter. And a hard-working sharecropper father My real mama was Apache My real daddy, y'all don't ask me Mama says she don't remember him I'm sure somewhere in my history I've got some slave blood in me And some folks think that I look Mexican I never really fit in any place Cause there's always a part of me to hate I'm the rainbow man That's who I am I'm a little white and black and red and tan I've got all these different colors in my skin I'm the rainbow man
All right, we're back up. I know that's an odd song to start a service with, but as you'll see, it's, it's per very pertinent to my story. Um, now, what I'm about to share with you is, is a very open, honest, not-so-pretty truth about my past. And all I ask in return, with me being this open and honest with you, is I'll ask a question now and then, and just please raise your hand and, re and reply. Is that good with everybody? Please raise your hand if it is. Awesome. Best church yet. So I was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1963. And when I was three months old, my mother gave me away. I don't know what happened. I don't know what the circumstances were. I just know that I wound up not being with my biological mother, my biological parents. At the exact same time this is going on, one state over in the great state of Mississippi, and I believe in being proud of where you're from, there was a young sharecropper and a wife who had been married for a couple of years. They got married really, really young. And all they wanted, their heart's desire for their entire life, was to be a mom and daddy to as many children as God would give them. That was their dream. See, they both had very rough childhoods, not a lot of love. Not a lot of family life. And so they wanted to give that gift to as many kids as God would give them. So they were praying. They were trying to have a child. Nothing was happening. In the middle of December 1963, they were awakened by the sound of a baby crying outside their window at 4 a.m. And so they ran and threw open the front door and there on their front porch in a basket wrapped in a blanket was a three-month-old baby. They brought me inside, and as they explored, they realized that the blanket that I was wrapped in was full of cigarette burns, burns all over this blanket. I had one baby diaper. I was wearing it. It was soiled. I had one baby bottle half full of spoiled milk. I had burns over a large portion of my body, and I had double pneumonia. So this young sharecropper goes out and finds somebody to find him in a little to let him into a little country store at about 5 o'clock in the morning. He buys medicine, uh, diapers, and milk, and they start nursing me back to health. In the meantime, they launched this massive search for my biological parents because it's not very common for a baby to show up on your doorsteps in the middle of the winter. you got to remember they were, very, they were extremely poor. They didn't have a lot at their disposal. And this was 1963. Uh, this was well before Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> what they had was newspapers. So they ran newspaper ads in the states of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana for a whole year searching for my biological parents. And no one ever came to claim me. So at the end of that year, the circuit court judge in Marion County, Mississippi, signed the papers allowing them to adopt me, and I became their child, and I became a Bates. Now, I love telling people that God's got a sense of humor. What's the old saying? If you, if you, if you, if you don't believe God's got a sense of humor, look in the mirror. I don't buy that, but I'll say, look at our lives. He shows up in some odd places, and it's great. One year after they adopted me, they commenced to having kids. And they wound up having eight of them. 
and they're all blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I didn't know I wasn't blonde-haired and blue-eyed. That's my brothers and sisters. We love one another. We hate one another. We fought like cats and dogs. If you mess with one of us, you got to mess with us all. And I was the happiest dirt poor kid on the face of God's green earth. Until I was seven years old. And when I was seven years old, I got in an argument with a little kid on the school bus. And he won. He told me, he said, you know, you're not really a Bates. Fact is, you don't even belong to those people. And you don't belong here. And I ran crying. that It upset me so bad. I ran crying that evening off the school bus into my mother's arms. The lady who adopted me. My mama. And I was crying and she asked me what was wrong. And I told her. And y'all, she just did what always works. She told me the truth. She told me that I was an answer to a prayer. Told me about how they found me on their doorstep about the adoption. Told me how much she loved me. She said, I just want you to know, baby, that out of all these kids we have, you're special because we got to pick you. Yeah. And she said, all these other nodheads, we just kind of got what God gave us. (laughs) That's my mama. And that should have been enough. But listen, I I think too much and, and I... My mom, she also told me that I asked more questions than all the rest of her children put together. I'm curious by nature. So if I went, if I got in trouble that day, and I might go to bed pouting. Anybody in here ever pouted? I don't see enough hands. Come on, put them on up. There you go. Yeah, now we're, now we're getting real. Anybody in here still pout? Don't act like you out good. I'd go to bed with my lip pooched out at night. I tell you what, my real mama, she's a princess. She's a queen. She's going to come take me away from around here one day. Ain't nobody ever going to fuss at me again. Or if everything was going fine, I would lie in bed at night and I would wonder why didn't my real mama want me? And the only conclusion that I could come up with was something must be wrong with me. And you would feel the same way. I'll show you. Have you ever met somebody who did not like you? Was your first thought, well, wonder what's wrong with them? (laughs) We're not wired that way. We want to be loved and accepted, not only by our Heavenly Father, but by our peers and our friends. I wanted the same thing you do. But I I couldn't stop looking in the mirror and seeing me being different than my brothers and sisters. And I would stand there and look and I would say, God, please give me blonde hair. Please give me blue eyes. Please make my skin lighter. So I, I just wanted to fit in. And I didn't feel like I did from that moment on. And so I started pulling away from what few friends I had as I went to school. And later on in school, I got to tell you, I never even had a girlfriend in school. If you ever meet anybody who says, I dated Jeff Bates. Never happened. I never dated anybody, preacher. I just met them and married them. Been married nine times. Oh, come on. No, just five. But if you say nine first, five don't sound so bad, does it? 
Well, I said that at a church a while back, and there was an elderly lady sitting in the middle, and when I said I've been married nine times, she said, shut up. <laughs> I told you it wasn't going to be pretty, but thankfully, I'm no different than you, and my sins are forgiven by my Savior. And there's, I have yet to find the Bible chapter in God's Word where there's a list of sins that Christ's blood does not cover. Amen? Okay, moving forward. I got, my heart's desire was always to be a singer because I discovered when I was young, younger that I, when I played guitar and sung, girls liked me. And uh, I wanted them all to like me, so I wanted to be a world-famous country music singer. Got my first gig playing in a nightclub when I was 17 years old. Two things happened that night. One, I got drunk. And I learned something. I like me better when I drank. And I liked you less. The second thing that happened that night, I met my first wife. Two weeks later, we was married. Three years later, we were divorced. But I made sure before I divorced her that I had my second wife picked out. I know it sounds funny, but, but see, it's kind of sad because how I felt about me. This is what Satan, if Satan can get in a foothold, a toehold in our lives and convince us that we're worthless, that we don't belong, that we don't fit in, that nobody's going to love us, not even our Heavenly Father. That something's different and wrong with us. If we believe that, he's in and he'll work hard. To ensure that we never see us or the world any differently. So from that moment on, I was the one guy that I could not stand to be alone in the room with. So I used people. I used alcohol. I began using drugs. And later in life, I mean, I kept adding to my drug arsenal. Not only was I using alcohol over time and over relationships, I started using sleeping pills, things to help me go to sleep, things to help me wake up, things to help me make me feel better, things to numb the pain. And finally, in a trip to Nashville, in a writing appointment, I'd been up for a couple of days straight, and I had a, had a writing appointment with a world-famous songwriter that could change my life, could change my career. friend of mine looked at me and he said, you're tired and you're exhausted and you're worn out. And I said, I am. And I don't know what I, I got to be on in the morning to write. And his brother said, I got something that can help you. And I said, well, please give it here. And he handed me this little glass pipe. And I didn't even question what was in it. I just lit the fire under it. I know what to do with a pipe. And I inhaled. And I felt it hit my bloodstream immediately. And suddenly I got extremely smart. I realized the President of the United States was a moron and an idiot. And I could run the country better than him. I solved world peace and world hunger just like that. Wrote four or five hit songs. I don't remember what they were, but I'm telling you they were hit songs. And then I exhaled. And I said, what is this? And he, he said, that's meth. Crank, crystal, speed. How you like it? And I said, I love it. I ain't never felt like this in my life. And I wanted to feel that way every day because you know what? At that moment, I liked me a lot 
and I could care less about you and what you thought. Unless it had something to do with me. From that day forward, all I could think of was how to get more. I mean, to be quite honest with you, 12 hours later, after I was still standing there trying to scrape more meth out of the pipe to smoke. I was searching the Internet for a recipe so I could learn to make it. I found it. I did. And I was also on the phone looking for somebody I could buy it from, and I found a truck driver I could get it from. From that day forward, every spare dime I made, I spent it on meth. And if I didn't have a spare dime, I just sold stuff that I owned. And I wound up selling things that I, I could never replace, like my granddad's pocket watch, my grandmother's wedding band. I sold it to buy more meth. And when I ran out of things to sell, I started stealing from my friends. If I loved you, I was going to steal. And especially songwriter friends. Brother Chris, if you were a songwriter... And songwriters normally have as many guitars as they can afford because every one of them sounds different. They inspire us differently. I'd come to your house, and I'd write a song with you. And if you got up and left the room for something, I'd run over to one of your guitar cases, and I would take the guitar out of it, make sure I closed the case back so you didn't miss it. I would run your guitar out to my car and be back into the room ready to write when you came back in. And when I left your house that day, I'd go pawn your guitar. And I'd buy meth with it. I stole from my mom and daddy. They were both disabled on fixed income. She wound up having a, a massive heart attack, had to have quadruple bypass. And I went to visit her in the hospital. And when I walked into the room, she had all the tubes, the IVs in her, the oxygen. She was comatose from the surgery. And I just walked right around to her bed to the nightstand where her wallet was laying there. And it had the edge of a $5 bill. For all I knew, it could be her only $5 in the whole world. And I took that $5 and I left the room without even kissing her goodbye. And I went and bought more drugs with it. I couldn't leave my house without wearing makeup. Any of you men in here ever wore makeup? That didn't have anything to do with a video or pictures or something? I wore it every day, man. You want to know why? Because I didn't want you to know that I was using drugs. See, I looked like I was dying, y'all. I was using so much that my skin was turning this ashen gray. I was losing weight. My face was gaunt. My eyes sunk back into my head, circles under those. My, my fingernails were brittle and breaking off. My hair was falling out, breaking off. My teeth were turning yellow, getting brittle, breaking off, actually falling out. Check this out. Is this a bad smile? These aren't my teeth. I mean, I own them. I didn't steal them from nobody. Sad, isn't it? Finally, it got so bad that I used to key to a good friend of mine's house who played lead guitar for Leonard Skinner and Charlie Daniels. He didn't trust me with a key his home and I waited until he was gone on the road and I let myself into his home and I stole $25,000 worth of guitars 
amplifiers. And I remember I piled it all up in my vehicle, and I made sure that I locked his door when I left because I love him, and I don't want anybody to get his stuff. See the intelligence? Two weeks later, as I was selling his stuff, I came home, and all these blue lights were in my driveway, and I knew it was over. And there was somewhat a little relief there because at that point in time, I'd been using two years straight meth and lying and hiding. And let me tell you, I got to say, I got to tell you, all of a sudden I hit that brick wall where bam, you can't go any further. Has anybody in this church ever been headed down the wrong path? And you know you're headed down the wrong path. You just can't seem to stop. And then all of a sudden, bam, you hit the brick wall. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. We have. And let me say this. For those of you that haven't, if there's anyone in here today who's headed down the wrong path and you know you are and you just can't seem to stop, I hope you find the brick wall. Because it's at that brick wall where Jesus Christ can step into our lives, where the rubber meets the road on our relationship with him with change and head us in the right direction. And i got to stop right here and tell you, 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 do you see... Some of the worst things some can create some of the best things. By that I mean is God can take the worst in us and bring out some of the best things from it. See, in the book of Jeremiah, I'm not a preacher. This is your gig, okay? In the book of Jeremiah, God actually says, Before you were ever conceived in the womb, I knew you. And I have plans for you, he says later, not to harm you, but to prosper you so that you may have hope and a future. That tells me before I ever had a body there, before I ever took on flesh, before I was ever even thought of by a human being, God knew me. Isn't that correct? And he already had plans for me. God's will, God's plans are perfect for us. But we like to be in charge, and so we'll run because we want God to fix our life as long as God fixes our life the way we want God to fix them, fix it. It ain't going to happen that way. And as long as our will is running rampant against the grain of his will, we are not going to be happy, and we're never going to fulfill our purpose in God's world that way. There is the brick wall. I had two options. I could run. They were driving these real fast police cars with interceptors, man, and and I was driving an old Jeep. That wasn't going to work. I reached down to my boot, and I pulled my meth pipe out, and I said, well, if I'm going to jail, I'm going to go out looking cool. And so I hit my pipe a couple of times, threw it under the seat, pulled down there, passed a couple of them, waved when I rolled by, you know, like an idiot. And then I backed into my parking place real slow, and I got out, and I said, How y'all doing? Man, they were glad to see me. They ran over and put the handcuffs on me, read me my Miranda rights, shoved me in a police car, and off to jail we went. Y'all, at that point, not only had I been using two years, I'd been awake about seven days straight. When I got to my little cell, this nasty jail cell, 
I crashed. And what I discovered about jail is they don't give you drugs to give you, get you off drugs. It's cold turkey. But for seven days, I lay there on that little cot going through withdrawal. Worst I'd ever felt in my life. I mean, I sweated. I ran fever. I had chills. I, I soiled myself. I wet myself. I threw up on myself. And I had the worst nightmares I'd ever had in my life. I mean, it was like demons were after me. I could feel them clawing my skin. And when I woke up seven days later, I had my first clear thought in months. And you know what I thought? That while I was using, see, while I was using, I came to believe there's no God and there's no Jesus. There's no, I mean, I gave my life to Christ when I was 15 years old and spent the rest of my life running, trying to take it back, Pastor. Didn't believe in that stuff anymore. And the more I said I didn't believe, the worse sinner I became. But when I woke up in that little cold jail cell on a little two-inch cot, guess who I called out to? I woke up. And everything that I had done came to my remembrance. I had hurt and cheated and lied to and stole from and used and abused every single person that I knew and loved in my life. And I suddenly, I remembered every one of them and I knew that I had done that and I felt the most shame I'd ever felt in my life, the most guilt. And I called out to God. That same God that I'd started believing didn't even exist. Because I simply didn't want to be that person anymore. So I rolled off that little two-inch mattress. And my knees hit concrete. And I cried out to God. God, please help me. You've heard a multitude of prayers on my behalf And I pray that one more is not too much to ask I tried to fight this battle by myself But it's a war that I can't win without your help Tonight I'm as low as any man can go I'm down And I can't fall much farther But once upon a time You turned the water into wine Now I'm on my knees Begging to you, Father Would you help me turn the wine back in to water I said God please help me I don't want to be this guy anymore I don't want to be this man anymore I'm not asking you to get me out of jail I'm here 6 to 15 years that's going to be my, my sentence 
I'm not asking you to get me out. I'm asking you to change me. I'm 37 years old and I'm in jail. And this is the bestest, brightest, smartest me that I can be without you. And I don't want to be this man anymore. And if you can't fix me, if you can't change me with me willing for you to do, then please kill me and take me off this planet because I don't want to hurt nobody else ever again. Do you want God to change you? Or can you change yourself? Do you want God to fix you? Or can you fix you? I can't fix me. I don't even know where to start to change. But I know that I am willing to do the work and let God do the changing. And when I came up from that prayer, I knew that I had to start making things right. I had to call people. I had to confess what I'd done. And you say, man, that's hard. That's tough. It is hard and tough to start calling people and confessing what you've done to them that they didn't really know you did. Fortunately, we have a Savior who will make every phone call, make every visit, every step with us toward making things right with others. And I can tell you from personal experience, not only will he do that, but he will also make a way and a means for us to make things right with other human beings. It's incredible. So I know i got to call Chris and tell him where his guitar is at. Why would I want Chris to lose his guitar? I stole it. He needs to know. It's going to be a tough call. And it's got to be collect. I'm in jail. So I said a simple prayer. I said, Jesus, please make this phone call me to, to Chris. I've got to make this right with him. And I'm not sure even what to say other than just tell the truth. But you know what he, he needs. Please help me make this right with him. And so I get Chris on the phone. I say, Chris, this is Jeff. Listen. You know that guitar you're missing? You know the one. I stole it. I pawned it and I bought more drugs with it. It's down in a pawn shop on, on, on Charlotte Avenue. I don't want you to lose it. Please go get your guitar before they sell it to somebody else. If you want to press charges, you ain't got to look for me. Just come down to the jail and fill out the paperwork. I'm already locked up. I know you're angry. I know you're mad. And I don't blame you. I'm sorry. I'd be angry and mad at me too. I hope that one day you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Chris, I owe you money and I don't know when I'm going to get out. I'm looking at a six to 15 year sentence. But I give you my word that when I do get out, I'll pay you back every dime I owe you. I'm sorry. I had to call 30 people like that. Those were difficult phone calls to make. I asked Jesus to make every one of them with me. And out of those 30 people, nobody came and pressed more charges. And every single one of them said, yeah, I'm hurt. I'm mad. I'm angry. I mean, it, it wasn't pretty. But every single one of them said, I forgive you. And you can pay me back when you get out of jail. And I hope you get your life straight. And that's what happens when you take Jesus on a phone call with you. He'll go. The hardest phone call I ever had to make was that sweet lady who told me how special I was when I was seven years old. And I got my mama on the line. 
And I said, Mama, this is Jeff. And she said, where are you? And I said, I'm in jail. And she said, what for? And I said, drugs and theft. And it got really quiet on the other end of the line. And then finally she came back, and I could tell that she was crying. And she said, well, I love you, and I'll be praying for you. And I'll see you when you get out. Click. How many mamas and daddies we got in here today? Let me see your hands, mamas and daddies. How many of you think you could leave your kids sitting in jail if they called you tonight and told you they were there? Be hard, wouldn't it? My mama understood a couple of things. She knew that if she come got me out of jail, I'd be right back in. And she raised me on consequences for my actions. And she also believed in God. She believed in prayer. And my mama would tell you if she were alive today, that prayer is still the greatest arsenal, or greatest weapon in our arsenal against the enemy. And love for our children, even if it's tough love. I've been to church on Sunday And I've been in jail And I put my family Through living hell And I've been a heavy cross to bear On the wings of mama's prayers I see her by the bed with her Bible open wide Looking up at heaven with tears in her eyes She knew when I was troubled, she knew when I was scared But I found salvation on the wings of mama's prayers I'm still holding on to the wings of mama's prayers These people came to me, and they said, listen, we know that you're, you're talking about change and if you're wanting to change, and if you're sincere about wanting to change, and you're willing to do the work, then we have a program in jail, in-house here, that can help you. Now, it's not going to shorten your sentence. If your judge is going, if you're looking at 6 to 15 years, you're going to do one of those. But if you want to change, we can get you in this program. And I said, I, I I want in. And so it was a 12-step program, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. And they got me in there, and I started working with a counselor there. And it was interesting because one of the first questions she asked me, she said, so what we want to know is you got to come to realize that you've got a problem and that your life has become unmanageable. And I said, duh. I'm in jail. She said, well, you got to come to believe that only a power greater than yourself. She said, when I'm talking about a power greater than you, I'm talking about Jesus. She said, only a power greater than yourself 
can restore you to sanity. And I said, wait a minute, are you saying I'm insane? And she said, duh, you're in jail. So she wanted me to go and make a list of people and institutions that I felt anger and resentment toward. And I didn't feel like I was mad at nobody. But she made me go do it anyway. And three days later, I turned in 40 pages. Number one on the list was me. I'd been angry at me my entire life. I wanted to be anybody but me. I'd rather be you. Because I wasn't good enough. Can't, never could, not supposed to. I didn't even, wasn't even good enough for God. Number two on my list. You want to know who that was? This was really interesting. Church. Church. I grew up in church. But I never walked through the double doors in church where by the time I got back to the middle row, that guy there leans over and tells her, that's that Bates guy. He sings in the nightclubs down there. What in the world is he doing in church this morning? She leans over and tells him that whole clan ain't nothing. They ain't no good. She, he leans over and tells her, looks like he's dressed up. He's going to walk back into God's house today. She leans over and says, oh, he has, I think I smelled alcohol on him when he walked by. And by the time that I get over here and I sit down, I already feel like I've been judged and condemned and convicted. Because the churches I'd gone to my entire life, they were more interested in being church-like than they were in being Christ-like. I'll take Christ-like any day. See people wearing these bracelets around says, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That needs to be gone. It needs to be, who would Jesus love? Answer, all of us. That's simple. So, 45 days into my jail stay, as I worked on me and I learned that I was there because of me, my choices, how I viewed me, how I viewed the world, all that stuff was my choices. Nobody else. I couldn't blame anybody else. It was all me my entire life, 37 years, all me. And if you ever hear anybody go to trying to blame the way they are on somebody else, hang that up. We are all capable and do make our own choices in our life take responsibility for your thoughts your actions and your choices that's the first step to getting right with god so 45 minutes into my jail stay i'm pacing my jail cell floor one night i'm like god jesus somebody help me i know that i'm forgiven amen am i forgiven I asked Jesus to forgive me. He forgives me. I asked Chris to forgive me. He forgave me. So did everybody else. Then why am I struggling with this guilt and shame and it's just weighing me down? God, please help me. And the only way I know to describe to you what happened next was I saw a vision. And it wasn't like, oh, nothing like that. It was a scene right out of the Bible. And it's where the religious Jesus leaders of Jesus' time were trying to trap him into saying something wrong so they could kill him and get rid of him because he was messing things up for them. <coughs> Excuse me. So they asked him. They said, tell us, out of all God's commandments, which one is greatest? The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' time all lived their lives by about 612 Mosaic laws. And they knew that God viewed all those laws as being the same level of importance. And the moment Jesus picked one, 
they could have him. They'd have him right there and they could get rid of him. And Jesus looked at him and he was on fire and sarcastic even. And he said, hear this, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commandments than these. And it shut them down. How many of you have heard that before? Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you know what it means? Pastor, will you come help me a second? And put you on the spot. Does God give us the right to judge, and I'm speaking of condemnation, judge and condem- condemn another human being? No, only Jesus ever. is the judge. That's right. No, ever, not ever. Amen. All right, cool. Me and you neighbors. <laughs> no, you ain't done yet. Okay. <laughs> We're neighbors. That means I got to love you like I love me. Correct. So I don't have the right to do this to you. Condemnation. I don't, right? Right. Okay. But if I got to love you like I love me, that also means I got to love me like I love you. That's right. Amen. That's right. So if God don't give me the right to judge and condemn you, then he don't give me the right to judge and condemn self either. Dead on right. He says dead on right. And that's the whole message today, y'all. We can run around half the time and try to figure out what other people think about us, what they're saying, why they're judging me. They look down on me. It don't matter. Ain't it none of our business? That's between them and God. Fact is, is we don't have the right to do this in judgment and condemnation. We don't have the right to do this either. When Jesus says we are forgiven, that is bottom line. And if we try to make it into anything else, point at somebody else, judging, condemnation, we're in effect saying, well, I'm God. I mean, we really are. Only God has the right to do that. And he doesn't do that until judgment day. Until then, guess what we have? Grace, forgiveness, and love, and compassion. And that's what we're supposed to have toward our neighbors as well. I was so excited. Thank y'all. I'm going to make this go real fast right here, okay? I'm not going to have time to do that song you asked for. I'm sorry. I'll sing it to you personally if you want me to. I was so excited, man, because I suddenly I felt more free than I'd ever felt in my entire 37 years in jail. I mean, I skipped over to my bunk like I was headed off to see the wizard. La, la, la. And I fell down by my bunk and I said, Lord, listen, from now on, everything that you want, the only thing that I want to do is what you want me to do. If you want me to go back and be a welder in Mississippi, I'll do that. If you want me to go back to Arkansas and sandblast, I'll do that. Or if you want me to stay in jail, then you either got something you want me to learn or somebody you want me to help, I'll be happy to do that. I love you. I'm going to bed. Good night, Lord. Amen. And slept better than I'd ever slept in my life. The next day I woke up happier than I'd ever been in my life. In jail. And I got my very first visitor in 45 days. And it was my song plugger from Warner Brothers. And he said, dude, you ain't going to believe what happened today. And I said, what? And he said, Gene Watson, the country artist, recorded two songs you wrote today. 
I said, well, cool. Nobody had ever recorded a song I wrote before. He said, that ain't all. I said, there's more. He said, yeah. Tracy Lawrence recorded a song you wrote today. I said, well, that's kind of weird. He said, that ain't all. Montgomery Gentry recorded a song you wrote today. I said, this is crazy. I mean, how long has this been in the works? And he said, it hadn't been in the works. This happened today. They called for label copy today, lyrics today. This happened today. And I'm like, well, thank you, Lord. I can write songs in jail. I know what you want me to do now. <laughs> Y'all, we have an active God. And the more, I love telling new Christians this especially. The more, and old ones too. I mean, it supplies to us all. The moment that we truly surrender our will to God's will, I predict accurately that things will begin to change within 24 hours. Because suddenly we freed heaven to do what it wants to do what God's will is in our life. And the next thing is going to happen when we really do that, we have changed the way we think and we get out of God's way. And we'll think differently and we'll see things differently. 24 hours. Try me on it. Try God on it. It's amazing. 45 days later, I had to go in front of the judge, and you know what? They kicked me out of jail. It was crazy. Kicked me out of jail. I was like, I promised God when I left that I would never stop telling him what he did in my life. So let me tell you what he did. I started going to church. I discovered that God is everywhere and anywhere I seek him. Don't nail me down on the denomination. Nail me down on being Christ's. I also learned that God had a plan for me all along. Jeremiah was right. All I had to do was say, what is it? One year after I walked, well, let me tell you what I did. I continued to make things right. I got a job pouring concrete. First thing I did was write you a check, paid you back for your guitar. Next check, I got to pay somebody back. Over the course of about seven years, I paid back over half a million dollars. Not because I'm rich, because it took everything I made to do it. But because Jesus made a way for me to pay back everybody I owed. One year after I walked out of jail, I got a call from RCA Records. I wasn't looking for a record deal no more. They signed me to a record deal. They hired me a personal trainer. I got my weight down. I got to looking good. They bought me some teeth. Told you I didn't steal them. <laughs> First song was a love song. Went to number seven on the Billboard National Chart. I've had seven songs in the top 40. I've had a number one Christian country song that if I wish my mama had lived to see. Because I said it right on the mantle by her picture, that award. That's the total God thing. And not only that. I decided that maybe I was old enough to, to, to be a father and not mess it up. I'd never had a child in my life. And this is real interesting. Me and my wife were trying, would try to have kids and nothing was happening. We was praying about it. I just did what I always do. Here you go, God. Whatever you want to happen is okay with me. And I went and found somebody to help me. I mean, I believe that God gives us all our abilities and our talents. And for two reasons, to help one another and to glorify him. Amen. So I went and found this fertility doctor. His name was Dr. And now here's God's sense of humor again. His name was Dr. Concepcion. 
And old Dr. Concepcion looked like and sounded like Gilbert Godfrey. And he said, he did all his tests on me. And he said, so, you did a lot of drugs, eh? And I said, yes, sir, I did. And he said, you did a lot of meth. I never told him I did a lot of meth. But here's what he told me. That meth permanently alters your brain chemistry. And that it altered mine in such a way as I was never going to be able to father a parent. I mean, father a child. Here you go, God. Whatever you happen is okay with me. And I can tell you what. My wife just sent me a picture three days ago of my beautiful five-year-old flesh and blood's daughter, progress report in kindergarten, and she did outstanding across the board, and I'm so proud. And that's a total God thing. I'm here today by God's grace. I'm clean and sober today by God's grace. Fifteen years. And if he can do this in my life, there's no end to what he can do in yours. So where are you today? Where are you with your relationship with Jesus? I can tell you that you don't have to leave here wondering what the answer to that question is. Amazing grace. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
God, we applaud not just Jeff Bates, not just for the thrill of his story, but for the reality that we have heard one more story of what you do in a life that surrenders itself to you. Father, we pray that not just the hour we first believed, but that time that your spirit whispers to us again and again that it's true at this moment that you would meet us right where we are. It doesn't matter if it's in a church, in a pew, if it's later on this afternoon around our kitchen table. It doesn't matter if it's at the cement floor with a bunk in front of us. Lord God, you meet us right where we are. And we thank you from that moment on, we don't have to walk alone. Go with us this day. But even more than that, God, give us the courage to go forward with each other. Help us be a church that bears this message to the world. We thank you that next week there'll be a biscuit right waiting for us. A friend to remind us it's true. A community to walk with us. Break into, Father, our isolation where we are. And let us walk this life that you've given us together. We thank you for it. Go forth with us, we pray. In your holy name, we thank you for the truth. We may not all be preachers. We don't need to be. But every one of us has a message. You live within us. May we bear you to this world in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say today, amen. Amen. Now, before you go, let me say one quick prayer over the meal so you can get right to it. I know.